Sometimes I get the question, why don't we see more of God's healing power today? And I don't just mean like in the church. It could also mean in our lives. It can mean in the church. It can mean through our lives, just everywhere and anywhere that we go. And I think that the answer is multi-pronged. I don't think it's one answer. I don't think there's two answers. I think it's multi-pronged. There are many answers. But I think it's important that as we ask the question, that we do actually come up with some answers because it's not that we've lost something, but I think we've lost sight of it, especially in the age and the day in which we're living because I believe, and I think most of you, if not all of you do, that God still heals. He brings healing to the suffering, those that are sick. We've seen it. I've seen it many times. We know in the midst of all of that, we've seen people not get healed, but we also contend for what God will and does do and so what we want to do is we want to cultivate the practice that leads to us seeing the things that jesus did because we don't just believe in the aspects of jesus that we like or just god just forgives and that's all he really does but we believe in all that jesus does we welcome all of the ministry of jesus i used to preach this message called is jesus welcome and what I meant by that, it was sort of a, a different way of introducing a concept that people have, we have a tendency to welcome the parts of Jesus that we like. And the parts of Jesus that we don't understand, we kind of like, well, I really love the forgiveness and I really love the grace, but I don't know about the healing and I don't know about the water to wine and I, I don't know about all that. I mean, that sounds pretty cool. And there are a lot of commentaries that do away with the supernatural aspects of Jesus's ministry and the disciples ministry and that which goes on today and the deck is very much stacked against us in this Western world that we're a part of but we want to go back to what the Bible says and also says is available for us today because Jesus does today what Jesus always did and that's the simple sort of basic theology that I could sum up everything that I'm going to say in those statements right there but i think it's not such so simple and we do need to go through scripture so the first thing i want to do is i want to give you a basic theology for healing ministry second i want to answer some very often asked questions and some of the things that people will say some of us in this room might have these questions or might be in this place i'm not assuming where you are i'm just saying that these are the common things that come up when we talk about healing and then after that i want to I want to talk for a little bit about how we develop a lifestyle where we see the healing power of Jesus come through our life. Because to assume that we're already doing that would be a big mistake. There are things that scripture teaches us to do that we have to step into if we're going to see the healing power of Jesus manifest through our life like scripture promises. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is a basic theology for healing uh, ministry and a, and a very true statement that I want to tell you is that we practice what we believe. The reason that it's important, theology is important, what you believe, what I believe is important is because we act out, we practice what we believe. So you've got to know what you believe, you've got to know that it's scriptural so that you're standing on this sure and certain foundation that comes from God, it comes from his word, so when you step out to practice what his word says, you know that you're on the right and proper foundation. We practice what we believe. And I need you to hear this. In page nine of John Wimber's book called he uh, Power Healing, it's a great book if you don't have it. I'll give you some recommendations for books at the end of our session. But in, his, in page nine, John Wimber was on, he was part of the faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary years and years ago. He was the leader of the Vineyard Movement. And he had one of his assistants do some research based on first-year seminarians. So here you have people that sign up to go to graduate school to be a pastor. All these people sign up to be a pastor. Here they are in graduate school. And they're going to read 27 books if they go full-time for an entire year. In that time in that year in reading those 27 books he had an assistant go through all of those pages it was about 8500 pages roughly 322 pages per book 27 books went through all of those pages to see how many of those pages talk about the healing power of Jesus or continuationism that God still does what he always did he heals he delivers he releases miracles spiritual gifts still happen today and they, they said that less than 3% of 27 books, 8,500 pages, for the first year, seminarians are going to learn three less than 3% about these kinds of things. 
Now, lest you think, well, you know, they're, they're going for leadership or they're learning how to preach or all these kind of things. Okay, fine. What about this? There's 1,398 commentaries on the book of Acts that are currently available today. Now, there are more commentaries, but those are the ones that aren't currently in print. So this is Peter Wagner and his commentary on the book of Acts, 1,398 commentaries. And out of those 1,398 commentaries, they believe that it was less than 2% of all of the commentaries on the book of Acts, less than 2% of those commentaries from those people that wrote them, actually allow for continuationism. And unless you don't know what that means, that means that they believe that what happened in the book of Acts still happens today, less than 2%. So people that are going to learn how to preach, teach, pastor, and lead are learning not the things that we're talking about tonight. They're learning all of the other things, and it's no wonder why it is that we don't see more healing power in the church. There is a lack of emphasis. Now, sometimes people, they ask me this question. They go, Ben, why do you focus focus on spiritual gifts, and why do you focus on healing, and why do you focus on prophecy so much? It's sort of like, why do you overemphasize it? And I say this very simple, silly illustration. If you go into my closet and I've got 20 pairs of jeans and two shirts, if I go shopping, what am I going to go shopping for? Don't you dare say pants. If I've got 20 pairs of pants and I've got two shirts, what am I going to go shopping for? I'm going to go shopping for shirts. Why? Because I lack shirts. It's not overemphasizing if I just go shopping for shirts. It's that I'm going to supply my closet with what I don't have. And I think we're in that place right now spiritually. I think that there are some ministries that are focusing on the supernatural power of God because we just haven't for a long time. I just told you, 1,398 commentaries on the book of Acts, they all believe that the book of Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive, which means it tells you about events that happened, but not allowing those events to continue on today. So there is a massive problem. The people that are going to school to teach everyone else are not learning about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder we don't hear about it. The Bible says something interesting about Jesus. It says that when he ministered, he spoke with one, he spoke as one who had authority. What does that mean? His words were not just words. He had power attached to his life, and people saw him and they thought, who in the world is this guy? I mean, he talks about the kingdom, and then demons come out of people. He manifested kingdom power, and he called his disciples to do the same. My point is to say, as we look at a basic theology for healing, you've got to realize that the current stream is already stacked against us. You go to read these books, and it is the theology for healing, signs, wonders, and miracles, and power that he has made available for the church today. It is just scratching the surface of what we have available to us today. It's just scratching the surface. There's not as much out there as you think. And the stuff that is out there is about an inch deep. Right? I went to, I have a systematic theology class, and I went to find a healthy and thorough Pentecostal theology book. There are just hardly any out there. And so I found what Peter Wagner and what John Wimber said to be very true. I could barely find it. Now, I'm not trying to be just Pentecostal. I read all of the other books. I wonder if other camps read the Pentecostal books, but that's another conversation, right? I've got some Reformed friends, and, and, uh, and I always ask them, I say, hey, I, I read a John Piper book, but will you read a Bill Johnson book? You know, not always. So there's that, you know, little biasm. All right, but I love you guys. If you're watching me, I love you. It's okay. I'm just messing around. I love John Piper. I love him. So I want to I look at three things. The first thing I want to look at in this basic theology is, first of all, sickness is a curse. The second point is healing is a promise. And the third is healing becomes, or healing is our ministry. Sickness is a curse. We were created by God, for God, in the image of God. And the Bible says that it was good. Look at Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made, quotations, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. God saw what he made and he said it was good. And when God says it's good, it's not like good and it might get sick. It's not like good, but it's got a little bit of imperfection. It was good. So what happens? 
God, in creating this garden, he puts a tree in the middle of, a middle of the garden called the tree of life. And there's another tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 2, he says this to Adam and Eve. For the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. If you eat from this tree, you are going to die. And we know that they ate from the tree in Genesis chapter 3. And this is not just a physical death. We believe theologically that physical, spiritual, and eternal death is what was enacted the moment that they did what God told them not to do. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, we know the story. The enemy comes into the garden, tempts Eve. She eats. She gives to her husband, Adam. He eats. They disobey God. And as a result of their disobedience to God, what he told them would happen, happens. Death set in. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death. It's a full cycle of death, leaving us in a depraved condition, a condition where we could not walk with God the way that God created us to walk. We are no longer, quote unquote, good in the sense that we are complete, because completion only comes from relationship with God, and we severed that by listening to a stranger's voice and going our own way. God never turned his back on us. We turned our back on him. And this is what it looks like. And so listen to this in Genesis 3.17. When I say sickness is a curse, that's not some word that I pulled out of my hat. This is something that Scripture teaches us. God is saying this to Adam and Eve. He says this in verse 17. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten who was deceived. That's not just a bad thing to listen to your wife. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground... Because of you, in toil you will eat from it, hard work, all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. He's talking hard work, toil. He's talking about pain. He says, to the, to the, you, will till, uh, eat, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, according to the, the theological word book of the Old Testament, the word for curse here means this, to bind with a spell, to hem in with obstacles, and to render powerless to resist. Does that not sound like the sinful condition that everybody is born with? You're born with this curse. In our circle, we call it sin sickness. You are rendered powerless, ineffective against it. You will sin. My kids, when they were old enough to talk, they were... Sinners, you understand what I'm saying? I didn't teach you to lie, but now you're lying. Discipline, come on somebody. Sinners. <laughs> Hopefully not from the womb to the tomb, but definitely out of the womb. This is a reality that we see that exists. It's not just nurture, it's nature. It's nature, it's absolutely the truth. The whole earth was subjected to the curse of death. So when you ask the question, where does sickness come from? It's a very easy answer. Sickness comes from sin. But not just your sin, like I backslid today and now I'm sick. No, it comes from original sin. When we fell in the garden, death set in. Paul would use the word decay. He would say, outwardly we are decaying, but inwardly, through Christ, we are being renewed day by day. Our body is dying. The day we're born, we are born to die, physically speaking. That's why we need hope and hope eternal. That is our hope. You understand? So this is so important that we realize sickness comes from original sin. It is an effect of the fall. Now, not everybody wants to hear that when something is happening, but you see throughout Scripture time and time again that sickness is a curse of original sin. You have lots of passages in Deuteronomy um, chapter 28 is one of them, but there are three promises of healing that God makes to his people because they're already subjected to this cycle of death and sickness as a result of it. But in Deuteronomy 28, 58, he says this to them as they're going into the promised land. He said, if you're not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring, this just doesn't sound like a very encouraging passage. Can we just agree with that? It's like you're not going to send this in a Christmas card. All right. 
He says, until you are destroyed. And I could make a case throughout the Old Testament that it's not just that God is doing this to people, but that it's God removes his protective hand from Israel. When he talks about, I will bring these upon you, you have to understand the whole earth is subject to all of this, but God puts his hand on his people Israel, and what he's telling them is, if you don't abide by the things that I'm telling you to abide by, I'm going to remove my hand, and all the sicknesses that you see all around you on all the other nations are going to come to pass. It's interesting. We'll talk about this in just a little bit, but there are so many promises of God for healing, which is my second point. So we see sickness is a curse. It comes from original sin. It's a part of the package of the fall, but healing is a promise. Sickness was released upon the human race because of our sin, but healing is released upon the human race because of God's goodness. And we see that defined in Acts chapter 10. In many other places, it talks about the goodness of God was released, practically speaking, through the healing of Jesus. Exodus 15, 26, when God reveals himself to his covenant people, Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God who heals you. This is a revelation to the people of God. I want you to know who I am. I am your source. In fact, he says many things about himself, doesn't he? He says, I'm your righteousness. I'm your healer. I'm your banner. I'm your provider. God is giving them a full and complete revelation of who he is. I am your source. You walked away from me, but I never walked away from you. This is what God says to them in the wilderness. But what we have to understand is that what we lost through original sin, Jesus redeems through giving his life, through his atonement, through his sacrifice. You have to understand that this is common, basic theology. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we call this atonement. He took our place. What he paid for was not just the forgiveness of our sins, but it was also the effect of our sin. And the effect of our sin was sickness, among many other things. And our lack of stewardship of the earth has caused us to be in problems that we're in today. And we could see this time and time again. I just want to look at Mark 8:31 real quickly, because this is where Jesus talks about giving his life. He actually says, I have to die. This is important when we see Jesus has to die. And he says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, listen to this word, must suffer for many things and, he, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says, I must die. I must. Why did Jesus have to die? Because human beings uh, bear the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin, as I told you, is the full cycle of death, physical um, this is physical, spiritual, and eternal death. We bear the penalty. That's what Romans talks about. The wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we've got to understand that it's not just separation of relationship, but there are many things that happen to us as a result of us falling away from God. The planet obviously is not going the way that God intends in his goodness for it to go. So all of this that we go through, including sickness, not just sickness, is happening to us as a result of the penalty of our sin. And it's not just God's punishment. It's the actual consequences that he told us not to go down this road. Because if you go down this road, here's what's going to happen. Can you imagine what would have been in God's heart when he told Adam and Eve and he looked them in the face? And there's no way they could have understood this. If you eat from this tree, you will die. You, as in the representation of the entire human race, with tears, with grievance, God looked at them and said, don't do this. Don't do this. He allowed them to make a choice. Don't do this because he knew the destruction and the chaos that was going to be released upon the human race. Everything that you and I feel right now as a result of sin, the consequences of sin, all of the pain and all of the turmoil and all of the problems and all the chaos and all the issues, it was in God's knowledge in that moment when he said, don't do it to them. Now, they didn't know that this was going to get unleashed. They got deceived. And they just thought maybe they were eating some fruit, but it was a disobedience. It was a betrayal to the one that created them. And God was like knowing in his heart what was going to get released. So Jesus had to die. It was absolutely necessary because the wages of sin is death and Jesus had to take our place. This is why it's so important. We call this substitutionary atonement theologically. But look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. 
Remember, healing is our promise. And this is talking about Jesus when he was going to go to the cross. It says this, verse 4, Surely he took our, uh, up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This word healed, there are some in theological camps that will just say, well, that's just restored to relationship. But this word isn't that simple. It's a complex word that talks about wholeness. That by his wounds, that we will be made whole. And it's not just eternal. And that is one way that people try to do away with anything that God wants to do in our times. Like, well, that means the sweet by and by. And some, you know, he kicks the can down to, into eternity. No, we know that's not true. Why? Because when Jesus came... What did he do? Jesus came healing and releasing the power of the kingdom. That's obvious then. Now we understand that by his stripes, by his wounds, we are, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's speaking every generation down through the line. Jesus carried our sin and its effects. By his stripes, we are healed. This speaks of uh, sicknesses to me. He carried our sin and the effects of our sin. That's the redemption package. That's why we pray for the sick. And so what does this look like? Jesus comes to inaugurate his kingdom. He comes preaching the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom. And it says this in Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogue, which they had a lot of teaching. Rabbis were teaching all the time. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. The word healing here is the same word for cure. He was curing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. The theology to me is so basic that we believe that Jesus heals because we see Jesus healed. This is what Jesus did. In fact, you can make a case that one-third of Jesus' ministry was to heal the sick. That's what Jesus did. I, I think one time we looked and there was 43-some-odd miracles in the four gospel accounts, some of them being synonymous, so maybe you kind of take that down to like 28 or something. But one of the main things that Jesus did was he healed the sick and he cast out demons. He, he was bringing with him the redemption of all that we lost, and we lost wholeness. Physically speaking, emotionally speaking, and he brings with him wholeness. He wants to restore us. We see that both from a spiritual vantage point when he would cast demons out of people, and it says they were in their right mind. They were made whole. We also see that physically speaking, whether it was a fever or any kind of other thing. In the ancient world, Jesus healed people. And this is just sort of simple, I think, in a sense that like when you look at what he did some theology today would say, well, Jesus did that to confirm and affirm that he was the Son of God, the Messiah that they were waiting for. Well, that's a very fair thing, except why did he then call his disciples, who were basically nobodies, to do the exact same thing? That's the question you're asking, and I have an answer for you. Number three, healing is our ministry. Healing is our ministry. Clearly, we see this Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, it says he called his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Isn't this amazing? You have like a tax collector, or really you have a publican, a guy who's in charge of all the tax collectors. You have fishermen, and you have a zealot, and a couple other random people who nobody really knows a lot of their background when you're talking about the 12 disciples. A betrayer for sure. But you've got a zealot. You know what a zealot was? He was a guy that believed we should overthrow Rome by any means necessary. Let's kill him if we have to. That's the guy that Jesus said, come and be a part of my 12. And so Jesus is raising up this group of people and it says he gives them power and them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick these are random common everyday people and we we put them in like sainthood today i understand that there's certain traditions in the church that that do that but they were just common people and they healed the sick they preached the kingdom and they cast out demons but here's what i want you to see jesus gives the great commission and this is what he's telling his 11 disciples. Obviously, Judas had betrayed Jesus at this point. He comes to them in Matthew 28. He's risen from the dead. Verse 18, we all know it, most of us really well. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey, listen to this, everything I commanded you. What did Jesus command the disciples to do? Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, preach the kingdom. Now, I want to mess with you a little bit because most discipleship programs don't include any of this. It's about morality, being a good person, having great character, loving people, being generous, really good morality. And how many discipleship programs are all about releasing the kingdom of God? When the disciples heard Jesus say to them, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them the things that I taught you, they would have thought in their mind the things that we're talking about right now. They would have thought, oh, you want us to teach people to cast out demons and to heal the sick. But today, in our modern world, this is not translated. Discipleship programs are full of everything but what we're talking about. And I'll tell you this, when you go out to cast demons out and you go out to heal the sick, you need a whole lot of Jesus to do it. You cannot do this stuff in the flesh. There's a lot of things in church we can do in the flesh, but I'll tell you something, this you cannot do in the flesh. Be healed. Oh, you're not healed? Okay. Uh, you know, we're going to need a whole lot more here, Jesus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like ice bucket challenge, Holy Spirit. That's what we need. Not just a little, little bit of water you can contain in a bottle. You need a lot more than what you got, and you get desperate because you realize that you can't do it. You're not smart enough. You're not qualified enough, but you're connected to the one that can. When he said, teach them to obey everything I commanded you, they would have thought about the stuff that we're talking about. And this we've got, I, I said, it's not that we've lost it, but it's that we've lost sight of what Jesus has made available to us. Are you with me so far? Okay, so we're going to take a couple more steps. Jesus commands the disciples also in Mark chapter 16 to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. He says a few other interesting things. We'll bypass that for tonight's message. Jesus speaks to his disciples about being witnesses but not just witnessing to other people about Jesus, but being witnesses of what they've seen and heard through the power of Jesus Christ. What, what do you mean? I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples. When they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, or Mill Creek, Washington, which is pretty much the ends of the earth in in their first century context. Here's the thing. Do not go and be a representative of mine until you get the power that is necessary for you to stand in that kind of a place. And this we have to understand because it requires of us that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to um, a man that travels in our denomination, and he was telling me he went through like 27 countries. And the message of the baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit, he said definitively that it is something that is not being preached across the board in every nation. From France to Spain to Canada to the United States of America to Mexico, that by and large, people are not preaching about the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I was part of a prison ministry for about three, two and a half years, three years. And I remember we had to sign a covenant. And I honor them. I love them. I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring unity in the body of Christ. And so you know we don't all agree on the same thing. In fact, in this room, we're not all going to agree. So we just get over it, right? Okay. <laughs> there are essentials, and then there are non-essentials, and there are distinctives. That's just the way that it is. So in this prison ministry, you had to sign a covenant document that you would agree to Orthodox Christianity. Amen. We all did. But you also had to agree that you would not talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, hold up, hold up. Don't get offended. So I signed this because I understood that we were primarily going into the prisons to preach the gospel and to lead people to Christ and basic steps of discipleship, get in your word and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyways, after going to the prisons for a long time, I realized I am preaching to men that know the Bible better than I do because they've got a lot of time. Amen. They got a lot of time on their hands. I'm not saying they're walking it better than me. I'm just saying they know, they quote the scripture at me. I just feel insufficient, okay? Sometimes in my street ministry, it was the same thing. I'm talking to people that know the Bible better than me. So I'm not like the have and you're the have not. It was just an awkward thing. I'm preaching to people that 
no, that's not what it actually says. I'm like, thank you, John, sit down, all right? <laughs> I have the microphone here. But I realized after being in prison ministry for a while that I'm talking to them about Jesus and I'm talking to them about living a righteous life and I'm talking to them about being a witness, but I can't talk to them about the power that is necessary to be what I am talking to them about being. And at some point, I just got done with it and I had to sign off of that ministry. And it wasn't a diss to them. God bless them. They got to do what they're doing. But I could no longer look these men in the face with integrity and not talk to them about the power that I needed in order to live out what I'm talking to them about. There's just no way. And here's the thing, when you know that you need God to live your Christian life, all of a sudden, prayer is necessary. You understand? It's not an option. It's not like something I kind of do when I feel like it or when I get into a jam. To live the Christian life, we have to be men and women of prayer. We have to be people that depend on God in our Christian life just as much as we did to become a Christian. You get into the kingdom because you recognize that he has what you don't have and he paid for what you could never pay for and you receive and believe and you walk into this new life and now the only way that you can live this new life that Jesus stipulates and calls us to is by walking out in the same dependence of his Holy Spirit to live the way that Jesus calls us to live. You can't do it and I can't do it, but the good news is that he's provided for us everything that we need. The good news is not try harder, be better, work at it. The good news is receive, believe, surrender your entire life, and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, I think it is. Sorry if the address is a little off, but it says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And here's what we're talking about. We're saying if you walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh because you're going to be so busy doing the things of the kingdom. You're going to be so busy walking by the voice of the Spirit who is leading you and guiding you into truth, into righteousness, into generosity, into evangelism. You're so busy listening to Him that it's displacing all the stuff that you don't want to do anyways. And so this is part of our ministry. Now, not everybody has... We talk about having the gift of healing. I think the gift of healing, to me, is a manifestation gift, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that everybody can exercise. That's what I believe about the gift of healing. Some people seem to have a trained or honed dimension of healing where they release more healing power. Um, yeah, I think it's because they focus on it more. I think it's because they emphasize it more. I think they carry that burden. And they, pr can we just say it? They pray for more people to be healed. They really do. I know people that pray every day for people to be healed, and maybe they see three out of ten people get healed or two out of ten people get healed. But some of us only pray. Let's just be honest. With that. I, said, I told you you can't get emotional about it. You can't get don't get offended. We should be the least offendable people anyways, right? Isn't that true? You guys, listen, I want to prophesy over you right now. You are the least offendable people I've ever met in my life. You just are because you follow Jesus. If you pray for more people, more people will get healed. It's, it's a ratio thing. All right, so the word power in this context, when Jesus said you will receive power, it doesn't, you know, people will say, like, it's the word dunamis, which means dynamite, which is a really bad thing to say, okay? It, it, it comes from the Greek word dynamite. No, it doesn't, all right? Dunamis, what it's speaking of in the Kettle's Theological Dictionary it means power to do the miraculous. That's what the word dunamis means. Don't ever bring up the word dynamite. God doesn't want to blow people up, okay? It's like just kind of a weird parallel there. It means power to do the miraculous. What does that look like? It looks just like Jesus. That's what it looks like. Jesus was not just the payment for my sins. He was the pattern for my life. So what I see in him is what I go after. We're being conformed into his image. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Amen, amen. So we'd see the direct disciples of Jesus continue the healing ministry of Jesus. And you could say, Ben, it's not all about healing. I know that. But you and I have been given something as we focus on the mission, which is to make disciples, which is to preach the gospel. He's given us power tools to build the house. And I don't want to use natural, regular tools. You understand? I don't want to do that. I want to use the power tools that he's made available to us. 
I want to use a power drill. You understand? I want to use a power saw. I'm not doing this. Okay? I'm just not doing this. I ministered among some Amish people one time. It was awesome. They built houses like Lincoln logs. It was powerful. But I'm not doing that. You understand? I'm using power tools. In the ministry, in the mission of God, we've been given power. Why are we not using it? And all of the books that I read from people that have gone on to be with the Lord, this is sort of their conclusion, and it is this. If God has made it available, why are we not using it? This should disturb us. This should disturb us. And see, what happens is we end up asking the why all the time, and we, we sort of we end up getting out of the place of prayer because we're so concerned about why something doesn't happen instead of just doing it. So you stop praying for people because you're so concerned about why something doesn't happen when you pray, and if you don't notice this, you should. You stop praying for people at the end of the day. Everybody gets discouraged. Everybody gets tired. Everybody gets worn out. But you can't let that stop you from an essential ministry that you and I have been given. We've got to get to the place of prayer. Now, let's navigate a couple difficulties that we have when we start stepping out in the healing ministry. A couple questions that people have, and the first question is this. Why doesn't everyone get healed? Thank you, Ben, for what you're sharing. I think it's really awesome. A lot of scriptures there. I'll have to look at those at home. You were talking really fast. But uh, why don't people get healed? Why doesn't everybody get healed? And generally speaking, here's the mystery. I don't know. <laughs> in fact, there's a passage Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is not a sufficient answer, but it's an answer. See what I did there? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of this law. So there are a lot of things that I don't know, but what I do know, they shall lay their hands on the sick and see them recover. James chapter 5, is any among you sick? Then call the elders of the church. We look at multiple passages. All who came to Jesus were healed. We look at the Great Commission. Teach them to obey everything I commanded you, and Jesus commanded them to heal the sick. So we have a lot of what we're supposed to do, and we're too busy asking the questions of what we're not sure about. Be certain about what you can be certain about. I'm not putting this down. I'm just saying, that generally speaking, we don't know. Are there scriptural reasons why people didn't get healed? There are some. I'm just going to throw out a few. Unbelief is primary. Ignorance, people don't realize demonic spirits some people were afflicted with a demonic spirit and that's why they were sick some of these reasons here but we have four occurrences in the new testament where people weren't healed philippians 2:27 epaphroditus was not healed for some reason timothy paul told timothy to take some wine for his frequent illnesses we don't we don't know about that some of you are like oh that sounds like a good idea every time i'm not feeling good i just take some wine too should probably take a little less wine. That would be the, that would be the word for tonight. <laughs> take a little less wine for your stomach there, buddy. All right? <laughs> Ephesians 5, be not drunk with wine. That'll preach. You could drop the mic right there. You understand? We're living in a culture of excess. It's fine. You drink beer and wine, okay. But listen, be not drunk with wine. Intoxication. It's not for you. Trophimus, we see First uh, Second Timothy chapter four. He was sick. Galatians chapter four, thirteen. Paul said he was ill, and I don't mean like the thorn in the flesh. I don't personally think that was a sickness that Paul had. I think people say that, but I don't think it was. But anyways, we see that Paul was ill in Galatians four, thirteen. He said that he wasn't feeling well. That's why he couldn't make a journey. So there was a time where Paul was actually sick. Okay, there are some theologians or some people in the faith movement that would say no, you know, Paul was never sick. It's not true. Paul was sick. He actually admits it. You read in Galatians 4.13. We don't exactly know why, but we know we're called to pray for the sick. So why isn't everyone healed? I don't know, but it doesn't stop me from praying for people that are sick. Amen. Number two is, do I have enough faith to be healed? And this is really difficult because I actually heard somebody preach one time that I really respect. I was sitting on the row and I heard them say, healing has nothing to do with your faith. And I just about choked. I thought, what in the world did you just say? I mean, you just skipped a whole couple levels right there by that one statement because it's not all about your faith, but to say that it's not about faith is not scriptural. Jesus said things like, hey, be it unto you according to your faith. You're healed. Go. 
It's by your faith that you're healed. He says this multiple times. I think I've counted five times Jesus said, according to the person's faith, that they were healed. So to say it doesn't matter is scripturally inaccurate. To say that it's not always the case would be accurate. Now, we all love everything to be in a nice little box, wouldn't we? And every time I talk to somebody that's got this nice little box, I just kind of smile. It's great. Love your box. It's It's pretty. It's pretty. It's great. You, you, you bring it out and show everybody once in a while that you have a nice box. Does God fit in that box? I'm just curious if God fits in your box, does he? I don't have a box, so uh, I'm not going to make a box. Sometimes my version or my box, God doesn't fit in it. But to take away the issue of faith would be wrong. Now, here's what I think you should never say when you pray for somebody that's sick. It's going to be all about your faith. You just have that. You just, Donna, you just have to have enough faith. That's not true. That's just not true. Now, do we want to help each other grow in faith? Of course. Does anybody in this room have perfect faith? You better shit. You come on. Listen, that was horrible. <laughs> no. Are, does everybody in this room want to grow in their faith? Absolutely. Come on. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about healing. We're talking about growing in faith to believe God first that it is true and secondarily that we step out to see it be true. All right? So faith is that we believe that it is and then it's not just what we believe but it's how we're believing for something after that. Now, in the, in the scripture you see that it also depends on the person praying. There's faith of the person praying and there's faith of the person being prayed for, but those aren't the only ingredients in these scenarios. But it's important as people who are going to pray for those that are sick or suffering or struggling that we cultivate our faith that we would release the power of God. So every time, and I'm going to say this and I mean this with all my heart and I'm not mincing words, I believe 100% of the time that it is God's will to heal. 100% of the time. Now, before people, there, some of you are like locked in, amen, Ben, thank you for sharing that. But a couple of you get offended by that. You don't understand what I mean. I believe that Jesus paid it all so that we could have it all, this side of heaven or not. But I believe that healing is our inheritance, fully and completely. So when I pray for you, I've got nothing else in my mind except God would heal you. But do I look at you and go, you're going to be healed? I don't put guarantees on the box. That's not mine to do. I just pray for you to be healed. Or I would ask you to do the same for me. That's what I believe. Is it God's will? Is it God's desire? Is it what God wants? Yes, because to say the opposite would be that it's God's desire or God's will that you would be sick. And I don't believe that at all. There is nothing in me, and I have the microphone, so I'm talking now. There's nothing in me, theologically or otherwise, that believes that it's God's will that you would be sick. But you've got to let me clean this up in case that offends you. Now, we see in Scripture, because I will in a couple of questions more. We have more questions to go through because you have them. There's weak faith in the Bible. It's interesting. There are levels of faith. There's what I call weak faith in the Bible. In Mark 9, 17, there's a man that comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, and Jesus says to him, if I can, and he heals him. I call that weak faith, because he kind of has like, well, if you can, awesome. That's, that's not a lot of faith, but guess what? The guy still gets healed. Isn't that awesome? Jesus talks about a, a mustard seed. And then there's, I call this some faith. It's kind of a weak way of saying it. Weak, some, and great. But some faith is where the guy says in Mark 1.40, if you're willing, if you're willing. I know you're able, but if you're willing. And Jesus says, I am willing, be healed. But look at what we have in Mark 5.25 and other places. This is what I call great faith, where the woman with the issue of blood says, if I just touch the hem of his garment. Now, lest you think this is kind of a weak story that we just preach once in a while to get people riled up, the woman had been struggling for 12 years. Now, some of us in this room, we either are or we know somebody that has struggled for that amount of time. And it is easy to give up when you've had chronic pain and illness for that, that length of time. You basically resolve yourself to say, God, you know where I live. If you want to heal me, you, you know my address. That's what happens. And so to see this woman at 12 years press in is very, very powerful. We see this. She also carried great shame. And this to me is great faith because she had to push, push past all of the shame and the difficulty. And she thought in her mind, if I just touch Jesus, don't you want to think like that? 
I mean, in the middle of your pain and your suffering and your struggle, like in the middle of however long you've been suffering, to still have that radical thought, if I just touch him, if I just touch the presence of the Lord. You know, here's my disposition. I want to die like that. I want to die like that. Some people will think, hey, that's a, that's a ridiculous proposition. Fine, I want to die like that. I'm going to die believing God for my life and for the people around me. That's how I'm going to die. I'm going to die in faith. And I don't think by the time I get up there, that's going to be a downgrade. I'm going to be like, upgrade. <laughs> you know, If I die for any reason, like medically or otherwise, I don't think by the time I get to be with Jesus, I'm going to be like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have believed like I did because I've never seen Jesus rebuke anybody for having too much faith. I've just never seen it. But he does rebuke people for not having faith. He says things like, you perverse generation, how long will I remain with you? Have you ever thought about what he meant when he said that? That's the son of God. That's not like the hippie Jesus. You understand? It's like everything's going to work out smooth, man. Don't worry about it. Like little Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this light. That's not Jesus. He doesn't rebuke people for having too much faith. I'm not discounting or minimizing anybody's pain or suffering, but you've got a choice. We've got a choice. And I, not, and I say this with all due respect. Whoever watches this, I say this with all due respect. And you can get criticized for talking like this. But this is what I believe. You've got a choice to make. Either you're going to decide that Jesus just isn't going to heal and he doesn't heal. And you're just going to move along and say, you know my address, whatever, whenever. Or you're going to be a person of passionate persistence and just believe until that dying day. But you have a choice that you have to make. And I'm, I'm just choosing up front that if that's the way that it happens for me, that's the way I'm going to go. And I respect people. I've known people to die in the Lord with complete faith. Our um, administrator, her husband, passed, and I saw them fight. And they believed. I mean, they just believed God. And I don't think they failed at all. They didn't fail. He got upgraded. It was amazing. He said, well, Ben, your tight little box doesn't work. I told you I don't have a box. We watched him pass into the next life, into the arms of Jesus. And they believed every day that God could heal him. And I think everything, and I've told her, I, I, I've told her face to face many, many times that you did everything that God wanted you to do. I believe that with all my heart. I watched them fight the fight of faith. It was amazing, powerful. It was an inspiration to me. That's, that's what I want to be like, to have great faith, to press past the years if there are years. <laughs> Number three is, if God is good, then why didn't he do anything for me? And that is embedded into a larger theological truth, which is question number four. If God is good, then why does he allow things to happen? Well, this is not what you say to people that are suffering. You don't say to them, well, let's go back to the garden. Because it all starts there. There was Adam and Eve, didn't wear any clothes. There was a snake, came into the garden deceived them. God told them not to eat the fruit. They ate the fruit. Came the fall. The fall came consequences and the curse. And the curse was separation from God. And with that 401k package also came along sickness and disease, which has touched and affected the entire earth from generation to generation to generation, which is why your friend or mom or spouse is struggling. I mean, nobody's going to say that to a suffering person. But literally, theologically speaking, the reason that we are in this big mess that we are in is not because God is punishing anybody. It's because this is the consequences of us walking away from God. And Jesus, don't you thank God for Jesus because he sent his son in the midst of that chaos to redeem us and to make all things beautiful. So in the midst of all the bad that we face, we have to look to Jesus and see the beauty of what he did. In every difficult situation, this is our reality. Why does God allow sickness? He could take it all away right now if he wanted to. Yeah, he calls us to carry healing and to release healing. Like we're his plan, we're his people. Number five is, doesn't God give sickness to some people to bring about his purposes in their life? And I believe absolutely not. 100%. I, 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 here's the thing. If you have a reformed theology and you're Calvinist in your thinking, I respect you, I disagree with you, I 
So this is a place where people are all welcome. You understand what I'm saying? I don't disrespect or make fun of anybody's theology, and I don't think I have it all perfect, but I just need to be honest. Like, I don't believe in Calvinism and salvation, and I don't believe in determinism as it relates to everything that happens. I don't think God controls every stoplight, and, and uh, I think if God was actually in control, I think the world would go a lot better than it is right now. So sometimes we have this, this word where we say God is in control, and I think that is a misleading comment. And you have to listen to me. You, you guys with me right here? Yeah. I'm touching on some things. I know how it goes. God is in control. Yeah, I mean, sovereignly God is in control. But God has also, in his sovereignty, allowed human beings to make choices. God is not controlling every stoplight, every decision that you make, which is why there are all kinds of abuse and divorces and all kinds of crimes that are committed. God's not doing all that. Do you think God's doing all that? No. He's letting you and I make choices, and we have been making sinful choices since the fall, which is causing all of this kind of stuff. It's the same reason why we have sickness today. That was part of what was released through the fall. And so when we look at, like, does God give sickness for his purposes? My answer is absolutely not. But does God use all things for his purpose? Absolutely. So I've had people say this to me, and I, I know I'm sensitively walking through this, but I've had people say, if I didn't have this sickness, Ben, Pastor Ben, if I didn't have this sickness, then I would never be this close to God. I don't agree with that. Respectfully, I want to disagree with that. Because here's why. What you're saying subconsciously, you're not, you're not even realizing that you're saying this, you're saying that God has to give people sickness in order to make them close to him. Now, I want to I negotiate with you a little bit, because I don't believe that. I believe that God, you, you gave this to the Lord, and he redeemed it in your life, and he used it for his glory, and he brought you close to him. That happened. That's real. I've, I want to validate that. I'm not taking that from anybody, of course. But theologically, you have to understand the implications of saying something like, if I didn't have this sickness, I couldn't be this close to God. So what you're also saying is in order for you and or us to be close to the Lord, the only way that you and I can be close to God is through Jesus Christ and his blood. I mean, seriously, think about that for a second. One man had to die so that all could be close to God, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, does God use sickness and disease and all those things if we give it to him to to? draw out good. Yeah, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But if we make that say God authors all things, that's not what it says. God works through all things. It doesn't say he authors all. That's a huge chasm to jump. For those whom he called, right, for those whom he loves, He's predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, right? So this, his greatest purpose is for us to become like Jesus. Anyways, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe God's causing sickness in your life to make you close to him and to love you more and to have this great relationship with him. But if you're sick, you give it to the Lord and God will draw you near and he'll redeem stuff in your life. And we all know that. God can take something that was meant for evil and he could turn it in for good, but it doesn't mean he's the causation of that evil. And we've got to be careful on that point because that point means the difference of how we see him. Is he the source of my problem or is he the source of my solution? Or is he a source of both and he's just playing games with me? So he's over on this side smashing me, but then he's over on this side using that, that same sword to put it in my hand so I can go out and fight. Doesn't seem right to me. Okay, just seems like a big game and I don't believe that. So anyways, I got the microphone. I'm telling you what I believe. All right, last thing I want to do and, we're just gonna, and then we're going to pray is I want to talk to you just for a few moments, and I promise it's a few moments. Developing a lifestyle for healing ministry. Point number one is deal with personal hindrances to healing. You've got to ask yourself this question, personal reflection. Do you have unbelief? And there's the guy in the Bible that says, I believe but help my unbelief. You have to acknowledge unbelief and give it to the Lord. You, 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 you can't just harbor it. Unbelief Okay, doubt is an experience. Unbelief is a practice. Everybody experiences doubt. You have doubts, I have doubts. We take those doubts and we submit them to the truth. And the truth usurps what we feel and what we walk through. And we have to process that. 
You understand? We have to process that. Everybody in this room has experienced doubts. You take those doubts, you submit them to Jesus, and his truth prevails. But if you let your doubts run wild, they become a practice, and when that practice comes out of you, that's called unbelief, and that's what Jesus rebuked people for. He did not rebuke people for having doubts. He rebuked people for living out of unbelief, which is to harbor your doubts and to heed your doubts. Listen, doubt your doubts. Push them back. Return to sender. If you are skeptical, like I'm talking and you have skepticism running through your mind, I know you. There's a couple of you. I mean, I like you too. I like you. I really do. But if you have skepticism, I want to ask you a question. Is it really helpful to you? When you go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, is, is skepticism helping you at all? I mean, in, in 1%. We call it discernment, but it's not discernment. Skepticism is not your friend. It is paralyzing you. And until you give it to Jesus, you're just not going to do much. So you've got to give it to Jesus. It's killing the church, skepticism. It's that Western mindset, if I can't touch it, taste it, smell it, or feel it, it's not real. Aristotle said that. It's a lie. That's modern philosophy, and that's what we have a lot of going on in the church today. We want to have these philosophies going on. Who's got the better philosophy? Who cares? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech, but the demonstration of the Spirit's power. I'm not a good speaker, but I'm going to live this thing, and I believe the power of God will show up. We need more people like that. That's what we need to do. You abandon yourself to that. It's not about having the better argument or being skeptical. I think some people honor skepticism and it's part of their hindrance. Like, you know, I'm just kind of a skeptical person. You know, I'm just kind of skeptical. I'm just kind of skeptical. It's like, yeah, get delivered of that. <laughs> right? Do you want to keep it? I think we honor it. I think we honor, honor criticism. Oh, I'm just kind of critical. I'm just kind of critical. Is that, you want to keep that? It's not healthy. We don't want to honor these things. When you say it, yeah, I'm kind of critical, but I'm giving it to Jesus. That's a beautiful statement. But otherwise, I just think we should stop honoring. I mean, I've heard sermon series on doubt, and I just, when, the more I hear it, the more I'm like, gosh, you know, it's almost like illegal to have a sermon series on faith because people get offended. But everybody in the world has a sermon series on doubt. Do you see something that's happening here? And the inactivity of the church and the lack of power, and we don't... Add it all up. Okay. Do you lack the practice of prayer in your life? And so when we talk about things like this, it brings guilt. We're talking about being a people of fasting and being a people of prayer. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, this, comes, this one comes out by prayer and fasting. He lived a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. I'm talking to you about a life that's dependent on God, not just what you believe in your head, but it has to equal actions as well. And these things are hindering our life, and what I'm saying is we need to confront them, we need to deal with personal hindrances, and that will help us to have a supernatural lifestyle where we can release healing. Number two is we need to develop an environment for healing ministry, which means we need to hang around people too, not just by ourselves, that believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know anything about, you know, oranges or orange trees, but I know they don't grow in my backyard, Okay. But I went to Florida not that long ago, back in November, my wife and family and I, we went to Florida, and they have orange trees. It's amazing. Orange trees, they grow on trees. I just buy them at the store. But they don't grow in my backyard because the environment, the climate, the temperature is not conducive for that kind of fruit to grow. And I think spiritually, it's very important that we realize that some fruit, spiritual fruit, is not conducive to grow in some of the environments that we're a part of. And instead of denying and, and, and acting like those aren't important environments, we have to link up with other people. I'm not saying change your church. I'm just saying you got to be around some people that are fired up about the power of the Spirit. They fire you up. They fuel you up. That's why people come to some of these things. We had a whole church come out to one of these uh, nights that we had, and they never came back, but they came. You know, it was awesome. <laughs> and I welcomed them, and I was like, hey, guys, you know, they're not that far away, and, and they're going for it in their church. And I appreciate that. And they were just saying, hey, we want to come, and we want to link up, and we want to fire up and fuel up, and then we want to go. And I was like, amen to that. Praise God. And we need each other. We need to, f this is a furnace. Because we're going to get killed out there. It's going to try to strip this faith and 
practice from us. Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown, Nazareth. Do you know that the Son of God had a hindrance to being able to perform the miraculous? I've asked this question in many churches. I say, do you think Jesus was ever hindered from healing the sick? And I have watched people go, no, because we've bought into this belief that Jesus was Jesus and we're us, and that's why we can't do what Jesus did. There's this sort of divide. No, Jesus, Mark chapter 6, he could not do any miracles there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them, a few. But you know what the next verse is? It says he went around teaching in all of the synagogues. And that's what we have a lot of. We've got a lot of teaching. Jesus could teach, he could talk, but he couldn't perform miracles. And there's an environment issue. It says very specifically in Mark chapter 6, it was because of their unbelief. So environments matter. And I'll tell you, just like even in our own church, I've watched over the years as we've begun to grow in the things of the Spirit, it's almost like this. I I don't know how to explain it other than to say, like, when the people of God begin to believe the Word and practice the Word, it's like non-believers come in or even people that are new to this, they come in and they just feel a sense of peace. Like even when somebody comes up in the microphone and they just prophesy over somebody, it's not that weird because the whole environment, there's no conflict in the spirit. And when there's no conflict in the spirit, it causes people to be at peace that even don't currently value that or practice it. They feel a sense of peace. Oh, wow, that's that's kind of crazy. Instead of going, that's really wacky. When there's a conflict among the people of God in the environment, you can almost feel it. Somebody gets up and speaks in tongues or somebody gets up and cuts loose on a prophetic word and half the people are like, that's really weird. That dude, who's that dude, man? Where'd we get him? Send him back. And the people that come in that aren't used to this house can feel it. Do you understand what I'm like? The environment matters. See, there's not just a natural climate. I mean, it's 71 degrees in here. I know because I set the temperature. But there's a spiritual climate in this room right now that's conducive for certain spiritual fruit to manifest. You say, well, that's why we can go some places and see what they paid a price for, what they've been praying for and fasting for, and you get to experience that fruit. That's what we all want to participate in. So I'm saying is develop an environment where healing ministry is becoming normal. One of the ways we did that is we have a healing team. Fred leads our healing teams, and I jump on once in a while. Come on, Fred. We have a healing team here, and we want to cultivate something where we're praying for people that are sick because we care. Number three is you learn as much as you can about the healing ministry of Jesus. Like, don't have an opinion until you've read the verses, right? We conclude way too soon. We conclude based on our feelings or an experience that we had, and I've found that most people don't search the scriptures to see what they say, and we need to make sure that that's not us. Search the scriptures to see that these things be so. Number four is pray regularly for healing in your home and church. If somebody is sick, the first thing you do is you pray for them in your home. Amen? Somebody has allergies, headaches, sickness, whatever. I remember in our church one time there was this girl and she had migraine headaches for like two, two and a half years. And I walked up to her and I I put my hand on her shoulder. Hey, how you doing? And she looked up at me like she was about to just shoot me. You know, when you, I don't know what a migraine headache really, I haven't really had a migraine headache, but she looked up at me like I was about to die. So apparently they're serious. Everybody shake their head. You got, if you've had one, you know. I put my hand on her shoulder. I didn't know what I was touching. I did not know what I was touching that day. I said, I'm sorry. She looked up at me, migraine headaches. So she said, will you pray for me? And I sat there and I said, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I just, I, I asked the Lord, instead of just by a stripes you are healed, I just asked the Lord, what? What do you want me to pray for? I mean, I'm just going to pray for healing. What do you want to pray for? And it was during worship, and I heard the Lord say this to me. Tell her to stand up and start worshiping, and I will heal her when she does that. That's going to put me on, okay. So I told her that. I said, stand up and see the deliverance of the Lord. Watch what happens, right? She stood up. She started worshiping Jesus. She just went for it passionately, and God released her of those migraine headaches, and to my knowledge, she's completely healed of those ever since. It was one act of obedience. I don't know why her and not anybody else. I've prayed for other people that didn't get healed of that. That was a pretty crazy thing. I just asked the Lord to speak to me about this thing, and that's what he told me, and we, we saw that happen. But we've got to pray for healing in our own church, in our own home, constantly in consistency. One of the things, if, 
you go to your church, what I, <clears throat> what I want you to do is pray before you go to your church service and ask the Lord for words of knowledge. Ask the Lord to speak to you about what he's going to heal that day before you ever step foot in a church building. And write them down, and you bring them to church, and you find those people. And if it's safe enough to do it here, let's do it here until it becomes normal out there. And what I've learned, if you don't do it in your home, if you don't do it in your place of, of worship, you're never gonna, it's never going to go cellular. You're never going to bring it out the building. It just won't happen. It's got to be normalized in your life, and then it will become normalized everywhere that you go. And we've got to practice that in here. So ask God for words of knowledge. And there's a five-step prayer model that I'll walk you through in just a minute, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close by saying this, and then we'll pray. I had this revelation about how people are going to get more healed in church, like as we gather together as God's people. And, and I want to submit this to you. This is really important because we're all from different churches. So we want to be advocates for this, but scripturally based. It says in the Bible at least five times, everyone who came to Jesus was, it says all, all who came to Jesus were healed. That's messed with me. I don't know if that's messed with you, but it's messed with me because all who come to me are not healed, Okay. But all who came to Jesus were healed. And I thought about it because a lot of times at church, I'm trying to find people a lot of the time and even issue the prayer call. Hey, if, you are, if anybody's sick, half the people that have something going on don't raise their hand. I've noticed this. Now, there's reasons for that. Sometimes we're like, I don't want to bother anybody. Sometimes you've lived with it so long that you've normalized your pain, Right? So it's not like you're trying to hide, but it's that you've just forgotten to ask for healing or for prayer, and that happens. But when we do the prayer call, a lot of people don't really even respond. And so I've just noticed something about how to teach our environment and our churches how to see healing replicated and happen more often. It says, all who came to Jesus, and then James 5 says something very interesting. It says in verse 13, is any among you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? He should call the elders of the church, and they will anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. They will pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. I want you to notice something, and this is how I want to close. Is any among you sick? You call the elders of the church. I had this revelation that there's something about teaching our environment and our people to call on the Lord themselves and to call on for prayer themselves. I just want you to notice that. It says all who came to Jesus, and then it says if you're sick, call on the elders of the church. There's something we need to do about teaching each other to have, carry a sense of responsibility that we're part of a faith community that has the power to heal and that we need to step out to receive and we need to step out. Now, I'm not giving you a guarantee. I'm just saying it's right there in the word. Everyone who came, it says. Everyone who calls on the elders, it says. And there's that revelation that we've got to have an environment that when we step foot into the building or we come to the small group or we gather together, that we step out and say, would you pray for me? And I think the more that we do that and not just wait for somebody to do that for us, I believe God will begin to move in ways that I think is stewarding the healing ministry at a higher level. And that's what we're talking about. It's not the only thing to do, but I think it's an excellent step because when I go to some churches, I have no idea where to get prayer I have no idea what to do. So my job as a leader then is that I need to make sure that the people of God who come into the house of the Lord know what to do and where to go and where they can get prayer. That, that's my responsibility. I have to make sure it's very clear. So then that the people of God know what they need to do. I know where to go. I know where we have this. I know what's going on. I know how to call the elders of the church. And this becomes more and more normal. And the last thing is pray for people everywhere you go. So here's what I want to do tonight. Amen. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Okay, I'm closed. I'm done.